0: Welcome to the Persister's Can Podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Lou Woods. Today's certified persister is Don Levine. Dawn was born in Toronto and moved to Barrie, Ontario at the age of 10. She trained as a teacher before getting involved in local politics in the Etobicoke area during the 2008 federal election. She joined the Office of Federal Liberal Leader Michael Ignatieff during the constitutional crisis later that year before moving on to work in the Government of Ontario as a Legislative Assistant, Press Secretary, and Policy Advisor in the Ministry of Children and Youth Services. Dawn moved into communications planning in the Ministry of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Affairs before being promoted to the position of Director of Communications Planning in the Premier's office. Dawn joins us today to talk about how she got involved in politics, what it takes to be a communications planner, and how we can encourage more women to get involved in civic life. Thanks for joining me, Dawn. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start at the beginning as all good stories do. Um, (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? So I have grown
1: up in both the city and the country. Um, I was born in Toronto and then when I was about 10 years old we moved just outside of what is uh, now Barrie but at the time it was just a farmer's field. And so to all my friends in Toronto I was the girl in the country. And to all my friends in my small town, I was the girl from the city. So I've always felt like I have feet in (laughs) both worlds.
0: (laughs) I love how that always works out as, you know, sort of being in between and of nowhere at the same time. That's
1: right. I know it's true. It's true. But the ability to be a chameleon is very helpful in
0: politics. So it definitely is. Yeah. So speaking of politics, how did you first get involved in the political process?
1: In 2008, I had finished my teaching degree, and I had just done a library program uh, for the TD summer reading program. And um, we were just headed into the federal election, to the campaign. And uh, like all great networking, uh, a woman working with the um, Michael Ignatieff campaign in Topico Lakeshore mentioned that they were looking for um uh, a personal aid for uh for michael and i had absolutely no experience in politics at the time um which of course led to some serious imposter syndrome thinking about whether or not i was qualified to apply <laughs> But uh, I just got involved and I started working on that team. And there was a lot more I discovered very quickly than just the run of the mill local election campaign happening with that particular candidate. And it was an amazing adventure to become part
0: of. So the the context of, of this period, of course, in, in federal politics is that 2008, we had a minority parliament going into that election in the fall and we had had one for some time because there had been the liberal martin uh, minority parliament and then the harper conservative minority parliament uh in 2003 and then 2006. so now heading into 2008 we were going to see if we're going to break this logjam spoiler alert we did not uh the country (laughs) was still quite divided sent a number of different parties in a number of different sizes uh back to parliament the Harper government, who you know had been the government at that point, of course, all governments ceased to exist at that point when yes. an election is called, which is important for this next part of the story. Uh, the Harper Conservatives had come 12 seats shy of winning majority in parliament, which meant that they would have to find enough consensus in the MPs who were sent to parliament on behalf of Canadians uh, enough consensus amongst them to cobble together a governing majority, at least on a vote by vote basis. So, you know, as the existing government before that election, they sort of thought, hey, we should have first crack at parliament and trying to govern. The opposition parties did not agree. (laughs) They did not like, (laughs) they did not like, they had the feeling that Canadians had sent a majority of MPs to Parliament who were actually represented by uh, progressive parties and therefore a progressive coalition government should actually take charge. This created a constitutional crisis uh, the likes of we hadn't seen really since the King-Bing affair in 1925-26 and The governor general was left with the decision of basically the option is always to choose one of these different options, the Conservatives or the Mm -hmm. Progressive Coalition, or to call an election. Well, an election had just been called and these are very, very expensive things to hold and having a snap election like that would be almost impossible to roll out from an Elections Canada perspective. So we were at an impasse and there was a constitutional crisis. Add into the fact that the leader of this coalition and the de facto prime minister of that coalition would have been Stéphane Dion, who had already stepped down as the federal liberal leader because of what at the time was a historic loss. They had 77 seats, uh, the Liberal Party, which was their worst result they had returned in their history because it was 26% of the total in the House. Um, He was gonna be the temporary Prime Minister until a new leader could be chosen by the Liberal Party. So that added to all the craziness around this time. And Stephen Harper, being the tactician that he is, outmaneuvered all of them and basically told the governor general to ignore the sheet of paper they had sent over to her to uh, sign and give them government. And he asked her to instead prorogue parliament uh, into the next year, because this was by this point, November, December, all of this was happening. So she agreed because this was chaotic. And the, I guess the sense was if this coalition was really strong and had what it took to, you know, put together a government and maintaining government, uh, for you know, a year or two, they'd still be there after Christmas, which as we know, isn't what happened. Um, Mike Ignatieff had been you know, one of the candidates in the new leadership race for the Liberal Party of Canada. He had also of course been one in the previous race. Mm-hmm. He was chosen by the caucus at that time, those 77 members to become the leader, uh, the interim leader of the Liberal Party because they didn't want to have a potentially snap election in January and, him and be leaderless. So he was chosen um and then basically at that point the other candidates sort of dropped out of the race seeing what was going on in the context of the situation we we're in right. the other part of this too is like we were right in the middle of the great recession like this had you know been yes. chugging along all year but had really hit the fan in the fall and this election and this constitutional crisis was in the middle of that context as well so the harbor conservatives were at, arguing for stability continuity and just continuing on with what had already been in place. And the coalition uh, essentially died when Michael Ignatov became leader. He famously was the last person to sign the paper um, and was, you know, fairly, fairly lukewarm about the idea in general. I think he saw that, you know, perhaps the Canadian public wasn't necessarily behind this idea because coalition government is a very scary word in Canadian politics. All of this to say, And it locks you context, the narrative, yes. It (laughs) does. So this was, you know, and we should say, like, this was a coalition with the NDP, but also the Bloc Québécois. So this was the context that was happening at the time when Michael Ignatieff became leader. And this was also the time that you joined his office. Can you talk a bit about what that role entailed and how that political environment, you know, one of the most chaotic times in Canadian politics in a long time, um, how that impacted your day-to-day work? that was the best context setting i have ever
1: uh, experienced because it absolutely (laughs) just re-triggered the intense (laughs) feelings that i had at that time it was drinking from the fire hose it was jumping on a treadmill that was already at level 10. the learning curve was vertical and it's hard not to take that too personally when you're stepping into a new role and think like, how do I have absolutely no idea what is going on? Like, is this me? Um, so thank you very much. That was very free therapy to remind me that that was a really <laughs> challenging time uh, to jump into those roles. And I think, you know, looking back, I am so grateful for the perspectives that I had um, in all of those contexts because absolutely, was I out of my depth? hundred percent did I have to learn how to swim really quickly? Yes, I did. And um, wh- the minds that were sort of part of that group of people that, um, you know, were working with Michael at the time that uh, got him through certainly precarious things, not even in the riding with, uh, you know, there was a lot of conflict, even locally around him being um, being the, the nominee and uh, becoming the member. And then, you know, his sort of quick rise to the top of the ranks. I mean, this was we were working with friction basically on all levels. And so it was certainly a a challenging. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) And and it was certainly a challenging time. Um, It in a lot of ways was um, quickly solidified the team, which in politics has great um, benefit, I would say, especially in the short term. Uh, learning to sort of trust one another, to understand one another, to rely on one another, and be willing to pitch in for people, which in a new office, as you reminded us, a new office, um, you know, a new location, we're all moving to Ottawa, stuffing our things in the back of cars and driving through snowstorms and moving into apartments we leased without ever having seen them. Um, <laughs> <you> ne- <laughs> this is. I was gonna say, that's okay, because yeah.
0: when you were working, you never saw them either. So that's that's true,
1: oh my God i did i did actually sleep under my desk once anyway um, <laughs> just a power nap just a quick power nap exactly um you're also working actually here's another one you're also working in a uh, second language right because you're you're right. starting to really be reintegrated into the ottawa uh culture uh, which is a bilingual culture um you know in government and opposition and so you know you're you're sort of learning the um yeah the subculture and the cultures of of government which wow that in itself is quite um, is quite interesting so watching the office come together out of nothing um was certainly intense uh you know learning your own roles not just your former roles within your job descriptions but as as almost anyone who has worked in political offices will tell you is that your job descriptions are not just what's on a piece of paper wow it was a wild time and of course we needed to expand right we needed lots of new people it was just a small ragtag team um... well it's 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 a
0: it's a good point too because michael Ignatieff, of course was famously an intellectual for a very long time had been a professor and had come into the world of politics you know he just wrote an op-ed um uh, last week i believe it was about one of your colleagues who just passed away from that time and he was talking about, you know, how new politics was to him because he'd never done anything like this. You know, there's yeah. a sense of like, here, here comes this hero coming in into politics, but oh. he's like, I don't know how to do this. And, and it's a very different environment, you've been talking about, you know, bilingualism with French, there's a difference with bilingualism in Quebec, bilingualism in Ontario, and then bilingualism in either in politics as well, like some of the right. word choices, even like that can be very offensive, of and, and you know, you haven't picked the right, the right framing. So this is an entirely different environment that you're all stepping into and and there's exp- there's political experience in that team but there's a lot of like rookie moments I assume as well where everyone's just sort of flying by the seat of their pants cuz literally no one had been in this context that the country was in at the time as well so it was really yeah. really a different environment to walk into
1: it's true and you're living you're living in politics days which are like a year in a day
0: yep. so i say this all yeah. the time
1: <laughs> yes like what just <laughs> happened these 25 things um, and it's, uh, you do often look to those people that have a little bit of experience, um, in different, uh, in different areas as like the, the Yodas, right. You are know, like, oh, you've worked in government. Thank goodness you're here. How does this work? Uh, and those people are invaluable and it does, you know, it, it can absolutely activate that imposter syndrome in, in lots of ways. But the good news is, is you become, become proficient quickly. Um, And that is, uh, you know, it it reminds you how resilient you are and and reminds us that, you know, we can learn pretty much anything we put our minds to um, and that we're willing to be curious about. So uh, it, it is very it's nerve wracking, but it's
0: affirming as well because you can get through it and you've got a lot of perspective on the other side. My sisters laugh at me all the time. Cause I, I constantly talk about how you can do anything for a year. Um, and I've learned that because of politics, it's true. It's true, a year is a career in politics. Like, exactly. And it is speaking of that's how long you spent in that office. And, and I do want to point out because people think about how, you know, that that leadership team and that election that would eventually follow, which you were not there for, that election that would eventually follow would become the Liberals' uh, worst defeat in its history, even worse than in 2008. But people forget that first year, Michael Ignatieff was riding high in the polls. He was actually leading the polls against uh, Stephen Harper and the Conservatives and things were actually going quite well. Then you left, and everything, uh, you know, obviously went downhill from there. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> that was it. After that, yeah. after that point, you, uh, you actually moved uh, back into the Ontario side of government. So you went to the Ministry of Children and Youth Services, where over a course of three years, you served as a legislative assistant, a press secretary and a policy advisor. I did. Then, the 2011 election came around uh, in Ontario, and at that time you moved into the public service for a stint in, again, the Ministry of Children and Youth Services, but in the communications branch uh, where you served as a media relations officer. Um, those are the brilliant folks who support us on the political side with, you know, sort of the breaking comms pieces that come in. They've always been a lifeline for me in all of my comms roles. Um, but, you know, again, no one ever leaves politics forever. It's the thing that always brings you back in. So you return back to the political side the next year and you became a policy advisor in the Ministry of Education. And that was at the time the ministry with the responsibility for women. Uh, In that ministry, you helped develop a sexual violence bystander campaign and work to update the sexual education and health curriculum. Now, this has obviously been a flashpoint in Ontario politics over you know, the last yes. decade or so, but we have to think about the context again here. So this curriculum at the time hadn't been updated in 17 years. Um, so what does that leave out? So that leaves out the internet, which is a pretty big piece right. of the puzzle in terms yeah. of keeping people safe. Uh, it leaves out the legalization of same-sex marriage that happened at the federal level uh, under Paul Martin. It leaves out, obviously, this was still to come, but the Me Too movement, which has done a lot to advance the issue of consent and uh, safe engagement between people. So all of these huge pieces of what we know of society now and how we engage each other in safe and respectful ways was just, you know, not really out there. So this was a really important piece of policy to update. So I want to take a little bit of time to talk about that because, you know, The goal here was to protect kids. Parents have a lot of views about things, about where things should be taught and who should teach them. But at the end of the day, the goal always had to be about protecting kids. And I think, I hope everyone sort of agrees on that point. So can you talk about what kind of engagement went into stakeholder management of this? You know, It was mostly people agreed on it, but there was a few groups of people who saw it as more of a a hot button issue. Um, Can you talk about went into the engagement of the curriculum update, and how you ensured the final result, put kids first. So
1: looking back on sort of all the awesome projects that I got to be a part of, and um, you know, there there were some really great highlights that you mentioned there, and and working with Minister Broughton, I had worked with her actually, um, when I came back, she was the minister that I worked with in children and youth services, and then she moved right, right. Uh, to education, um, and I, I came there as well, and, um, Minister minister responsible for women's issues. Um, Working on those sort of, I would say, some of the hugest pieces of work that she was able to move forward in her time in government was absolutely some of the most rewarding, transformative things that I had a chance to be a part of. And, um, you know, some of those, as, uh, you know, folks might know, had a few hands in them. And some of them had a lot of hands in them. And the, um, the sex side curriculum was one of the ones that had a lot of hands, a lot of hands, a lot of iterations, a lot of stakeholders, a lot of, um, people that, um, wouldn't necessarily be classic stakeholders, but essentially squeaky wheels that, uh, that needed to be heard. And, it was it's interesting because when I worked um, when I worked in uh, just rewinding for a second when I worked in um, the office of the leader of the opposition one of my my main uh, roles was working on stakeholder management generally figuring out who we engaged with how often we spoke to them who had the contact with them and so I actually learned a lot about stakeholder management from a from a higher perspective from a broader perspective and then this file came along and that was much more the minutiae of stakeholder management, the art of, um, you know, speaking to, in this case, a lot of people. Um, and the truth is, it's one of the projects that um, I still feel the most frustration about, even though I shouldn't, because <laughs> uh, because you know results are moving in the right direction, and you can't always get the the um, morals the moral superiority win you're looking for, and um, it, you know compromise and um, timing. I think the 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 thing that I learned that was most frustrating um, on that file was. Um, that especially in comms planning, timing is trumps almost everything. And so whether right and whether or not the curriculum was ready, which it was, and was well <laughs> consulted on, which it was, um, and was you know <laughs> was uh, factually accurate, which it was, and moving in the right you know it was all of these things, and then it was just about timing. And of course, everybody. Um, You know, it was such a a flash point for people's reactions and to this day, people still bring it up like, can you believe that they're doing this in school, Uh, is that actually true, so I think you know understanding the the awareness of the general public around um, their understanding of the of the curriculum process in Ontario was really frustrating it, it was just a, there was a lot of feelings involved in this one teresa i think you can see that and i think pretty much anybody who worked on it and there were a lot of people who who had touch points on this would say the same thing that it was it was very frustrating to sort of see it being um passed around again for another look at something that was just so good the way it was um and, and sure. that that certainly is a um It doesn't keep me up at night but it is certainly one that i have interesting um retrospective feelings about um around could more have been done could we have done it differently um right so it is a challenging one to kind of relive for sure
0: it's it's one of those things where politics is very frustrating because you know there's the famous saying that it's a game of inches and it's about making this incremental project which, yes. which you know for me drives me crazy because i yes. just want the good thing done and let's move on and That's keep right. building on it you know the right um, answer yeah <laughs> but i i think that policy is actually very similar to basic income where yes. it's something that was a great idea that we had so much consensus on and then you know the oh, rug was pulled out and it's something where progress was made and we see tangible differences but it's like we could have gone so much farther if this had absolutely ended. like we think about bullying and sexual harassment and assault and the things that kids have to deal with and how much further could we have gone to actually of protect course. people and and i'm sure it keeps you up too of, of thinking about these things that we didn't get perfect or we were pretty close to there and then you know again politics the is wins. something about timing and luck yeah right? so And sometimes that's true. I mean, sometimes, and
1: this is a great, a great um, sort of foreshadow about talking about comms planning. You know, lots of people who work sort of in the, the, uh, the tie, the towers that have the perspective, they understand why the timing isn't right. And they might not be able to tell you why. And they're, you know, they, they're often right. And sometimes they're not right. And uh, so it's, it's very frustrating, especially when you're working on those files that are such heart files, um h-e-a-r-t heart files that yes. um it's frustrating when you're close to them and you see the positive impact they can make and how important they are to move forward from a policy perspective and you're told not now and i remember being on the other side of that in the comms planning office saying yeah this is a great it's a great piece of policy you can't announce it right now nope. <laughs> it's like ouch <laughs> i feel that pain because you know having been on the other side of it is a
0: challenge it's, it's actually a great point because the thing about politics is most governments who get elected, you know, we, we have incumbency advantages in Canadian politics that happens kind of everywhere. But most governments, you're lucky if you get two terms. We were very lucky at the provincial level getting a ton of, <laughs> of terms in a row. Uh, we were there for you know 15 years, and what that can make you do though is be a bit hesitant about going forward and really pushing on something that really matters because you know most people who get into politics they think okay we have these four years and maybe we have another four years. What you should really be thinking is we have these four years. That's the only thing that's guaranteed. Or two years is right. like in a minority. And what are we going to achieve in that time, like, what is the thing we're going yes. to advance? And how hard can we push to make sure that happens? Because this is the shot we get, um, That's right. but cause planning, and, of and course, to your And point, that's some serious like,
1: rollout, right? Because now you're thinking in terms of four years, right? And you, so you think to yourself, what do you want to end this with? What do you want people to remember at the end? What's the contentious thing you need to get out the door? Like now we promise right you, can't them. We, need to, we need to announce this because this is a, this is a tough one and we can't really sell this getting close to, like that's some advanced comms planning for
0: sure one and to your point that's that's what comms planning is all about because there a lot of governments yes they go do the heavy terrible thing right out the gate so they have time to recover <laughs> politically and hopefully get reelected yes. and then do the other stuff they have to do examples being you know um the health tax in 2003 hst in right. 2011 yes um, There's a whole number of pieces that are painful but need to get done and you hope that politically you can recover. It's nice when governments actually make bold choices and go do the Uh, hard thing. We don't see enough of that anymore, I don't think. But to your point, comms planning is all about how do we do that in an effective way and how do we make decisions about stuff we actually can't politically get done and stay in power. so I wanna talk about your next couple of roles because they're very similar. So you went to the Ministry of Premier's office. You became the Director of Communications Planning in the office of the Premier. Uh, this basically meant that you were the head of the core, one of the core departments in the Premier's office and you were in a key leadership role in the Premier's team. You know maybe you can talk about what the communications planning team does how many people are part of that team because there's a number yeah. of different people there and then how that team interacts with ministries because yeah. you know as a comms person in a ministry i would have been interacting with a specific communications planner in the premier's office for my files and then you were overseeing that person so can you talk about you know sort of the scope of what that team did absolutely so um The way that
1: I, you know, sort of visualize the team uh, in the Premier's office, the communications planning team, is they are basically air traffic control. So they have a bird's eye view of all of the communications across that are being planned across government. So that includes uh premier's announcements that includes uh you know big policy landmarks that are coming down that includes ministry announcements that are being proposed it includes issues like you know um truth you know if there's a specific um court case that's coming up it includes i was gonna um, say court
0: case (laughs) i know exactly (laughs) yeah exactly and
1: and so things that
0: are planned but unfortunate and could go anyway
1: like oh that looks ouchy probably don't want to do anything on that day um and issues and then of course there's always the um wild card of uh you know last minute issues so it essentially is the um you know the the all you know when you make fridge soup and you just like chop up all the vegetables in your fridge and you're like wow this looks so the comms calendar can sometimes look a little like fridge soup which is just like all these (laughs) ingredients and um, you're, you're sort of trying to you know, back to the air traffic control, um, uh, visualization is that you're trying to get these planes to land and you've got some jumbo jets. They need a lot of space to land and you got to make sure that everyone's ready for their landing and you've got your crews on the ground. And then you've got some little Cessnas that have to come in and they can glide in easily. So, the role of the of the comms planners in um, the Premier's office is essentially to make sure that none of those planes crash into each other, that, you know, our jumbo jet has plenty of room for a big fanfare landing um, and that, uh, you know, those thunderstorms that are coming up, um, whether or not they're planned, you know, have room to do their thing without disrupting your chance at controlling the key messages um, in the public sphere. So it I mean, that sounds easy, right? So. <laughs> So uh, one of the things that you love to do when you're working in comms in a ministry is to uh, is to hate the comms planners in the premier's office Um, because no, I love mine. (laughs) Oh yeah, sure, (laughs) whatever. It's okay. It's it's allowed. Um, (laughs) Because they have this, uh, they they tip the scales as to whether or not what you have been envisioning and laying track for and working on with your policy team and your ministry. They tip the scales on whether or not you're going to be able to do it at the timing that you would prefer. And of course you have preferential timing. you are looking at the comms calendar for your ministry. You understand your stakeholders. You know what needs to get done. You're the expert on your file. They're not the expert on your file, but they still have the opportunity to say that's not going to work because they can see the bigger sort of landing map of all the other planes. So the comms team in the premier's office typically consists of the sort of director of comms planning. So that was a role that I had a chance to um, to occupy and that was an amazing experience. And then um, three or four uh, comms planners and those comms planners each have files that, and capture um different ministers offices so they they become sort of uh file experts not as expert obviously as the communications folks in that minister's office themselves but they're able to have familiarity with the um you know the the key players in those files the style of that uh, minister's office that minister um and that's a really helpful, a really helpful thing for them to have. And so, um, folks that have actually had experience in those ministries are often um, selected to be the comms planners on those files because having a background does help um, sort of create a little bit of uh, institutional knowledge, which in politics is gold. <laughs>
0: institute they tend to (laughs) do they tend to sort of organize around like files like is it you know you're gonna go with education and post sec for a given advisor or or how was that how was that structured and, and did you make those decisions or or how did that get set up for your team
1: so i i can only speak to sort of our experience and our time and i'm sure you know just understanding the way that this office has evolved um you know each each premier's office has a different color, a different philosophy, and often it's nice to have comms planners and policy advisors in the premier's office whose files line up, um, uh, sort of together, because they end up working yes. together a lot. <laughs> yeah, yes. exactly. And so, so that is is certainly a, a helpful goal to have. Um, you know, a comms planner who has, um, you know, sort of education and. Uh, and uh, post sac or or children and youth services line up with policy advisors with similar files that being said you can't have you know a couple of massive files under one you know giving someone health uh, education uh, transportation um true you know, not all the ministries are the
0: same size it's like
1: lord that poor that poor person would buckle. Yes. so and it does actually, it evolves. So sometimes those roles get switched around. If the, if for example, we're, we're doing a, a, you know, a big push on a lot of health announcements, a comms planner's time might be really taken up by a lot of health related stuff and they might need to help, um, you know, offload some of their things to other planners that are having a lighter time of the comms calendar. And right. people are usually really helpful around those things. So.
0: One of my favorite examples of that, because it was also my problem was, uh, we had, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about this actually is as in the lead up to a budget, there is a a focus on specific areas of what the government is doing, Mm -hmm. um, stuff that, you know, premier's office wants to highlight in that budget as the things that they really care about. Um, and in one of the years that I was in government and at the ministry of housing, I was, the comms planner for our ministry i was also the acting press sec i was also the acting chief of staff that week (laughs) (laughs) which happens frequently so i had i had a lot going on but then it was also a post-budget week in which we were announcing the fair housing plan the changes to rent control to make province wide rent control a reality across Ontario and the launch of the basic income pilot all in one week, which meant that was all my problem, Um, you know, both for staffing the minister and doing his press, but also doing all the leadership around that. But it was also the problem of the comms planner that I was working with in premier's office who would have had to get sign off on all those materials to make sure, you know, they were exactly what they needed to be. It's a little bit easier in the budget context and there's a longer conversation going on around those pieces, but in terms of the actual, launch of that that is a still you know sort of game week thing for the comms team um so that that's one example of when it can get really really tight and there's just a lot going on yes. for a specific team member it's so, so true it's
1: so true and those are at least those are the predictable times right i mean
0: right we planned that i was like to throw
1: you a predictable comms times as well I and mean, then
0: you really need to pivot so Exactly, exactly. That's an example of where we plan that situation for ourselves that's and like... that experience, and that's <laughs> not, not always that. That, that's not always what you are handed in a comms that's department, so, true. so yeah. that leads me actually to the a question about the skill sets that are needed for a comms planner because You know, everyone thinks about, well, you need to be a good writer. If you're in comms, you need to have some kind of skill with, um, narrative development, because to your point, that's what comms planning. It is it's connecting all these different pieces into a broader narrative, but it also takes a lot of organization. Say if you're getting three major announcements dumped on you in one week, how do you make sure everything is getting done? Everything is set up properly. We're launching it well. Um, so can you talk about the various different skills that are involved for a comms planner, because they're not exactly the same. As you know, other communications roles in government. No, that's absolutely right. So I just want to
1: give a shout out to all the uh, the young ladies who have themselves a paper calendar right now. You might be a future <laughs> comms planner. Uh, um, <laughs> if you're writing things in a day planner, you're our girl. So uh, yes, so a comms planner is um, constantly juggling incoming information. Um, so, uh, obviously, skills of organization, you know, uh, these little hacks are vital to survival. And so, uh, you know, allowing yourself to not just see what you know you see on your calendar, but also anticipate because, Uh, It is those it's those anticipated things that you then insert on the calendar that will save you problems later Um, Another great uh, sort of thing I learned as I was um, going being put through my paces in that role is It's not about uh, necessarily managing your team Um, It is you're you're sort of in a limbo zone between different levels of uh, sign-offs so you You're you're listening to the team, which is bringing information up. You're also very much in contact with upper senior management, which is setting the sort of bigger agendas around key messages, themes heading into elections. And so um, essentially putting that information Sharing, I would say sharing as much of that information as is possible to share, because some of that information isn't um, sort of a public consumption piece, uh, brings everybody onto the same page. And so knowing that you're always going to be sort of managing down, managing up, and laterally is um, kind of a big a big part of that role you know is is checking in with your colleagues because often people assume in these silos of work in the policy silos in the upper in the upper management silos in the ministry silos everyone assumes that people have the information the truth is some of the worst um the collisions of of news come when when those assumptions are made and so um Asking people to, and oh, Lord, this is an ad nauseum request to please follow the process to notify that <laughs> <laughs> notify that you have an announcement coming um, is uh, is just a lather, rinse, repeat, because it, it, it is a lot coming at you and reminding people of the fact that they need to share this information, even if it's just with your comms planner, essentially will make your life much easier in the days to come um so that i think is a vital a vital component of working in that office is just understanding that people forget that there are other departments and that you need to share that information and then i would say sort of last last big piece is not being afraid to anticipate the friction points and to uh, essentially create systems um that alleviate those. And so one of the big things that we did that I think worked really, really well um, when we were in that office is we established, we essentially uh, backed up timelines for um, submission of press releases, uh, you know, backgrounders, other communication materials, and sort of made harder deadlines around those things. And I know that's a really challenging thing to do, um, especially when you know a lot of times you're working with um you know your your ministry and they're finding information but the truth is more time is a good thing because it allows you that more allows you more flexibility so i think not being afraid to establish firm timelines and just essentially saying listen by this point you just got to give me what you've got we need to work with something because comms planners are constantly um not writing as much to your point there is I mean good writing skills are important, but essentially um, using that lens of of message uh, of message clarity and message penetration across all of those files, you know they got to give them time to do that. So I think those are sort of the biggest pieces that I had to bring forward into that role.
0: yeah. I'm really glad you mentioned paper calendars, process and work backs, because that to me, that's the summary of being a comms planner, because, you know, I comms usually fails because it's done poorly, but the other reason being is because we just haven't given ourselves enough runway to get it done. And yeah. people always think about you know the runway of writing because writing is this like cerebral thing you do on your own. It isn't in, in politics. It's something where everybody's got pens on things. People are editing constantly. It's version control is extremely important, um, but it's one of these things where you need to plan out your work back and you need to insert the approvals process into that because the people signing off are signing off on 42 different things elsewhere and they don't have time to look at that. So give yourself as much time humanly possible to get those things done. A lot of that means that you have to do a lot of forward thinking and anticipation, anticipating things. As you mentioned, you have to start thinking ahead and figure out if we do this thing, Mm -hmm. where do we have to start? And, you know, process is important for this because you know it what is. are the 12 things you have to do to get something across the line. So plan for those things, build out yeah, that. Absolutely. Timeline. I was going to say, so, you know, knowing that's the case, I wanted to get into sort of the, the tools of the trade of the comms planner, which the biggest piece is obviously the rollout, because you have to put all this down somewhere where everybody can see it, where there are edits made to it, but where everybody has eyes on the same, Amount of information, knows what's coming down the pipe, and can Ugh. start to plan out based on that. So, can you talk about rollouts in general from a comms planning perspective, but also how that worked from sort of a premier's office to multiple ministry yes. perspective? Because there's a lot of pieces, again, the air traffic control yes. of this.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think before I get into that, I just do want to do want to also acknowledge uh, the, the massive role of the public service in this as in cabinet office. So the Definitely. cabinet office comms planning, comms team is incredible. They are the best in the business. So I just want to give them huge props because they are like the hardest working people uh, in government. Um, but uh, in terms of the roll da- the rollout, so <laughs> I feel like there should be some sort of like holy rays when I say the word rollout, like.
0: I'll ah, ah. we'll insert a sound effect.
1: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so the rollout is the thing. It is the uh, the single document, um, and I do mean document because it is a paper document, um, which. Uh, sounds inconvenient but the truth is it just is the best way to do it as far as i can tell it is a paper document that is a calendar that essentially uh, incorporates everything we've touched on so it incorporates the um you know everything from holidays to um to large government announcements to smaller ministry announcements to Issues that are burning and they are literally are all written on this calendar and it is the role of, of the um, individual comms planners to sort of know their buckets of information and That rollout essentially travels with the comms planners to every meeting that they're part of um, It is uh, it is sort of continuously updated It's a living document that the comms planners uh, have the pens on and it is um considered locked for about 30 seconds, um, (laughs) right before (laughs) the rollout meeting each week. Um, Probably
0: 30 seconds afterwards.
1: (laughs) Yeah, barely, not even, like it's dead by the time you make it to the meeting. But anyway, you you have high hopes and low expectations. (laughs) So the rollout then comes to a rollout meeting, uh, which includes basically all of, the sort of senior management um across uh, across the premier's office and and other folks and essentially that meeting is to inform it, it's sort of like the the big look right you talk about exactly what is on the calendar people might have questions concerns that's the time when they can say oh we can't do that because we have a something there um and so the the rollout meeting leaves or sorry the rollout calendar leaves the rollout meeting looking like a badly written essay in first year (laughs) university that you got an F on (laughs) with your notes and your scratches and your needs more information. And, uh, you know, we need a briefing note on, oops, we can't announce this because of an issue that's happening that nobody told us about. Um, so it is kind of the big moment when everyone can sort of voice concerns about what's upcoming. Obviously, in those meetings, greater um, attention to detail is given to things that are proximal. So things that are coming up in the calendar are, you know, there's lots of questions: who's involved, what's the photo op look like, um, you know, who's preparing the, who's preparing the, uh, you know, the copy, who's updating the website, when will this go live, and it, it's sort of the role of the comms um, planning director to have those answers, and if not, to say. I'll get you those answers as soon as possible yes
0: it's true The the yeah. answer is never i don't know it is yeah. i will go find out
1: of course <laughs> i know who knows and i'll let you know yeah
0: yes.
1: so uh so that is sort of the the ebb and flow of the comms plan planning process so the 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 great and holy rollout comes to rollout meeting it is then uh, torn up to pieces, moved, shredded, moved around, and then redistributed back through your comms planners. When you get the very good or bad news that your announcement is proceeding as you expected. Maybe this is just my brain, but there's always sort of an eye in, in political offices to, can we do this better? Or is there a way to do this? That's not so taxing on everybody. And you know, how do we maximize the human resources of everybody who's working on this? Cause it is a massive undertaking. And, um, you know, you can make little nibbles away at the process to make things more smooth, but the truth is, it's a human process and it's messy, and that is just the way it is. So, being the person that is sort of the the adult babysitter of the uh, of the rollout calendar is it's a pretty interesting role, and it it uh, it's a very unique perspective on the way that um, government communications works.
0: It comes back to the rollout too is not just what you're planning to do it's also a really good communications tool within your office within the ministry within working with premier's office so everybody's on the same page about what's coming up and when that needs to be done and there's no surprises like government and politics has enough surprises as it is comms should not be one of them like your process for comms should not be a surprise that's on the table you know it's one of those things that you can plan out and you should um i do want to talk about a little bit here. Um, you were talking about, you know, the things that become the announceable that premier's office really chooses to highlight. I want to talk about the different ways that you can roll out communications because I think people think, okay, this is, you know, an issue I had all the time in government where my concern was that government wasn't focused enough about what its, you know, three to five core things oh. were that it was talking about wanted to do, and part of that is because everybody's little baby, their comms baby, they want to talk about to the loudest You know at the loudest level to the broadest group possible but that's not good comms good comms is focusing on those really core items that you can then tie into with the rest of the narrative but there are ways to go get that message out still in a comms way it could be you know at a stakeholder event it could be just a news release that gets sent to local media can you talk about the different ways that you can sort of still get that message out without it being the marquee thing government doing? because you know if your priority is everything it's nothing and we know that and comms is the vehicle for signaling that to you know the That's broader right. public That's right. So so that is great
1: perspective. You're absolutely right, because those big pieces, those Hallmark pieces, they come, you know, right from the senior management. They know the kind of story they want to tell um, as we get closer to an election time. They know those those sort of legacy pieces, those those big window pieces that they want to be highlighting where they want the premier to be um, for those particular items. And so those are their focus. But other than that, you know, every other comps planner, planner, uh, you know, rightfully so, thinks that their file is the
0: file. It's going to win us the yeah.
1: election. <laughs> <laughs> and so their proposals for an, for announcements would always be exactly like you said, big announcement, we're going to, we're going to get the ballroom at the Royal York and we're going to have, you know, 300 people. There's going to be like an interactive whatever, and we're going to invite all the media and all the stakeholders. And there's a huge document launch and uh, a new website's going to go live with an interactive tool. And, and, and and honestly, it's, it's a challenge because like, you know, having been in in those roles too, where you have all these great plans and they make great sense for your stakeholders. um, It's just not feasible. It's bad, you're right, it's bad comms. You, you blow your resources doing things that aren't going to penetrate sort of the general public's understanding knowledge about your government, your premier, and sort of what your priorities are. So a lot of the job of a comms planner is squashing those dreams. Even <laughs> <laughs> though yep. And so you often are going through, through those, those meetings as a team and the comms planning team going, oh, yeah, no, this is going to be a paper release. This yeah. isn't going to be a big announcement. This needs to be, just be a paper release. We just need to show proof of life that we are working on this. Proof of life, paper release. Um, you know, oh, this is a really interesting issue for this, you know, um, ministry. And and the only people who care about it are their stakeholders. Yep. It should be a stakeholder event. This does not need to be news. So one of the sort of um, interesting inter- personal things that happens is a is a sense of trust between um the comms planner in the premier's office and the comms person in the ministry sometimes they're gonna get news they don't want yeah you can't make an announcement on this sorry this is not an announcement because of a bunch of reasons i don't even want to get to you should see the rollout but there has to be sort of a sense of trust that they understand that what you're doing is important but that it doesn't work within the broader um framework of what the government narrative is. And that's a constant state of tension, because you're almost always telling them that the thing they've been working really hard on is not going to come to pass in the way that they wanted it to. The truth is, sometimes we're sometimes the comms planning team is wrong. (laughs) And I've been I've seen that too. It's like, we should dial this down. This isn't a big deal. Oops, actually, it was kind of a big deal. And this would have been a great um photo op this would have been a great photo op we could
0: have
1: you know we could have done some social media stuff around this so so sort of understanding the um you know it's back to the basics like who are who's the audience for this who cares about this um how do they need to consume it right is this is this a cool photo op is this something um that this should be you know this should be a social media push um is this does this require um does this require Ontarians to actually touch this? So, you know, I'm thinking, for example, about um, this is just top of mind given previous files, but like, you know, the OMAF for a farmer's market tool. Well, there's an actual map that shows you where farmer's markets are in Ontario. So like, that's interesting. We should probably do something online where people can click the link and see where local farmers. So really understanding who you're talking to as always. is important, but also understanding where that fits in the broader context. It does not always have to be a television announcement um, downtown with the Queens Park Press Gallery. Um, you know, it could just be a, you know a quick chat with your local um, Orangeville citizen. Um, yep. You know, it really you know sort of reminding people of the breadth of tools that they have in order to make something a public record piece uh, is kind of a fun way to collaborate with your comms
0: planner. I think this conversation about narrowing focus is obviously most important in an election. You can get away with failing a little bit on that in government. You can't get away with that in an election. You have to be very clear about why you should be elected, what you will bring to the table. So I want to... Go back to your election experience because I've you know purposely skipped over it because you had two different roles uh, in 2011 and 2014. In 2011, you were a part of uh, what was then a really new team, meteor monitoring. So I'm going to paint a picture of Ten Saint Mary, which is the you know very very old building that the party office had been in at the time. There was a main office on what was it the west side of the building and then there was a rental office on the eastern side of the office uh office building that was filled with, I don't know how many people, but a ton of people, because this was the first real social media election in Ontario. There was tons of people just, you know, monitoring Twitter all the time. Contrast that to 2014, where, you know, social media is kind of old hat at this point. We had a team of what, maybe seven people uh, sort of generally in that vicinity of email, online, whatever, uh, website, social media. and you had much more of a broadcast role in that uh, campaign where you were focusing on pushing content out, which brings us back to the two types of communications, which is, you know, the sort of issues, focus, breaking news, high anxiety type of comms person. And then the more, I like to say cerebral, but long-term thinking, planning, chilled out, um, you know, comms planner type, of comms person. So since you've worn both of those hats yeah. in campaigns, maybe you can use that to talk about the differences in those roles and your experiences during those two election campaigns under the the McGinty Liberals and then the Win Liberals.
1: So in uh, in the experience I had for the first campaign, it's interesting to to remember that at the time social media was now sort of being considered a legitimate tool, a newly legitimate tool to have a political voice in and on. And um, the team at the time um, was massive and uh, consisted of, of members that were um, sort of more on the war room side, monitoring accounts of, um, of, of candidates, both ours and um, from other parties. And also consisted of, uh, you know, people that were actively engaged on social media, um, you know, actually either less pushing content out and more taking that, that monitoring information and getting involved in direct, um, in essentially direct conversations. Something that at this point, you know, in 2022, we would never do because uh, what do they call it? Yelling into the
0: void? <laughs> Screaming into the void. Yes.
1: <laughs> Screaming into the void. Because a lot of that, that at the time, I mean, I'm not sure, I mean, it would be great to go back and see what the efficacy of that work was, but we spent a lot of energy debating trolls. We spent a lot of energy debating <laughs> trolls in 2000.
0: So I will give my piece of advice that I give to everybody, whether it's a random person on social media, they're a politician, whatever. The rule of trolls is two. You respond once, to say your position and figure out that they yes. fully are a troll. Yes. And then you respond a second time to say thanks and then Thank show you. that you're the better person in the conversation I'll to anyone else That's who probably. is viewing it. That's what That's it is. Good. That's it. That's
1: <laughs> but I mean I, I agree with you, but I'm gonna go a step I'm gonna go a step further and, and this is, you know in a campaign, energy conservation um, of Huge. your of your team members is important. Uh, before you even before you even go into your rule of two, find out if this person has a following is real is this person is this person uh, right exactly is this I agree, person, well, yes, real. the landscape are they has they an changed egg?
0: the landscape yeah yes. are they an egg it's, the landscape has changed of course over this time <laughs> like we know there are massive amounts of bots like these are not real yes. people yeah, at the time, and some people so are just yeah. you know don't want to be reached at all they just want to spew right. hate and all that kind of stuff so the rule of two is now applied to just those who may be a real person That's with real right. concerns they who you following? should address right right. and then move
1: on on? yeah yeah so 2011 was a lot a lot a lot of very um rapid response uh type um communications monitoring and responses you know uh oh my goodness somebody from this uh, agency tweeted this thing can we get a policy person to help craft a response that we can tweet back like it was a lot it was very fast paced. It required a lot of coordination between different teams. And at the time it was, I mean, we you can only do with the best you can with the information you have at the time. That was the kind of online um, engagement that was happening. Um, it was exhausting. And then
0: in, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds exhausting. I'm like, I wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> it's it's it
1: was exhausting and who knows? I mean, I'd love to see some, some information about how that all played out. I mean, the answer is it played out well, because we totally we won. butt in that election, but um, but then, uh, you know, in the in the following campaign, when we had, um, you know, a much more scaled down social media team. Um, you're right. It was a totally different approach because we had become more savvy and sophisticated around how human beings, you know, your average Ontario human, um, that gets their one vote, uh, interacts with online information. And, um, you know, we had obviously discovered, um, I guess discovered is the wrong word. Is that we remembered the power of images over words. We remembered the power of including links because people can click them. We remembered yeah. the power of synchronizing our efforts, which is, you know, the social
0: media.
1: I, I heard it was a good idea. <laughs> I heard that one time. It was a good idea. <laughs> you know, the, the, the social media team doesn't need to wake up each morning and go, what are we going to say? It's like our comms calendar is locked. We know what we're talking about today. We know what our message of the day is. We know where the premier is going to be. We know what the photo op is going to be to reinforce the, mess- the our message of the day. And what a wonderful world to live in that was. <laughs> It was uh it felt a lot uh less frenetic it was um, a great strategic use of social media it allowed um you know the premier to build her sort of following online um you know it was less you know just like in a campaign it's not about necessarily finding the people who disagree with you and telling them why they're wrong that's a terrible use of your resources it's it finding is. the people who do agree with you and telling them where to vote so that's basically what we did i mean having an entirely different philosophy around the use of that tool was a really helpful way to essentially just magnify what we were already doing and on a campaign with you know you don't have a lot of time you don't have a ton of money you the best thing you can do is pick your message and then go for it and i think that the the social media team really did essentially work across the different um the different departments in the campaign to try and align um with what everyone was doing to just sort of essentially amplify what they were working on which is uh, exactly where they should be in my humble opinion
0: i think it really highlights how you know there is a defensive posture to communications and there's an offensive posture to communications and comms planning is very much that offensive posture of let's go create a narrative, let's go get engagement on our terms, yes. and there is you know room and a purpose to both of them. But I think the campaigns that tend to win are the ones that are driving the narrative, that are on offense, that are you know pushing the conversation forward rather than playing catch up in response.
1: That's right. It's the be- the best defense is a good offense. It's a hundred percent right. That <laughs> that is the saying.
0: <laughs> the saying. I, I know
1: sports stuff. <laughs> (laughs) but no you're right because because you're i mean the whole goal is to control the message of the day that's it you know if you're controlling the campaign message it's on your terms people are are talking about your candidate and your issues you're you're set you know and if your issues are aligning with and resonating with your voters you're set and so yes the offense posture obviously
0: much preferred (laughs) (laughs) so You know, you spent quite a career in politics, several elections, federal provincial level, working in the premier's office. All this gave you an enormous amount of experience, which you've applied to your life post politics. You are a business owner, you are a farmer, you are somebody who is sought after for advice on all manner of, you know, strategic thinking. All the experience you had, what's that, you know, taught you about politics, about women in politics and how to get more women in politics uh, going forward and why that matters?
1: So, um, you know, these are the things that keep you up at night when you're no longer working in politics is, um, I, you know, the coulda, woulda, shouldas, you know, I should have, I should have spoken up about this or I shouldn't have had such... Um, delusional imposter syndrome and um, you know, I should have spoken truth to power more and I should not have been afraid. And I think, you know, one of the, the great things that I saw modeled uh, was when women who had the privilege to speak their truth to power did, it sent a shockwave um, through to, for others. And so, you know, often we're we're sort of, the subtext, the message is that, you know, we should be grateful for these opportunities. We should always say yes. We should always ensure that we're protecting our safety within the system by maintaining proximity to power. And a day will come, you know, that you you yourself ha- have gotten to a place where um, you have the strength or confidence or safety that you no longer need that proximity to power. And then it's sort of your opportunity to, to be the one that you know, says the things nobody wants to hear, but is the truth or, um, you know, stop someone from, from saying something that's, you know, demeaning or offensive. And so, and so I, I, I you know, having seen that modeled and saw seeing how powerful it was, um, it really meant a lot to me. It was the, the sort of lift while well, you climb mentality. And I, I will owe a lot of that to Minister Broughton. She was just, a a wonderful role model in that way and she um you know she really didn't um suffer fools gladly and that was a beautiful thing to see in a woman leader (laughs) um and so yeah so working on the farm here it's been a phenomenal experience so we have uh we have i think the the largest lavender field in ontario now here at avalon lavender farm if you don't know how to do something you know people often ask oh did you come from a farming family no i did not but politics Reminds you that if you want to learn how to do something you can and you know all you, you don't need to know the answer. You just need to know where to look for the answer. And so if you know this farm has been a great, great experience in just reinforcing that and And one of the the coolest things is that, uh, you know, getting to hire, um, you know, local local women to to work on the farm to be our partners uh, in delivering um, events in working in communications um, has been such a joy and uh, all of the artisans that we work with uh, on our products and in our events and our agritourism stuff it's all women and that's no accident and um, it's just fantastic to see the, the level of, I wanna say mutual respect and collaboration that sort of appears naturally in those relationships, uh, because they lead to more good things. I mean, it's not just something to do because it's the right thing to do. It's strategic because I think women are now awakening to something that um, that men do naturally, which is making these sort of networks of referrals and uh, these networks of, Uh, their go-to people and I think you know we're starting to do that too and we really should be
0: because it's a beautiful thing. It's something I've been thinking a lot about with this podcast because, again, you know, I started it with the idea we need to get more young women in politics, more older women in politics who maybe haven't thought about it as a career opportunity for them. And the networks that we all sort of already have because we're all already doing politics, we're already, you know, doing stuff in our communities, we're already doing stuff to help other people. And there's these huge networks of women that are working together to create change in their communities and we can do that at the political level we can do that at the local level i've decided to call it the persisterhood because i think that's what we are (laughs) and you know i've got to use that in marketing somewhere but i think i think that's essentially what we are we are women who are working hard together to keep striving to make change that we want to see in our communities in our world um And there's nothing nicer than that. Like I I highly recommend surrounding yourself with good, you know, strong, brilliant women who you wanna do work with. And there's a whole list of them who have been, you know, guests on this show who you can tap into to talk about some of these things, whether it's the specific jobs that they've done in government or even just navigating a field filled with men. Long (laughs)
1: live the Persisterhead, Teresa. (laughs)
0: Thanks so much for joining me today, Don.
1: It's been such a pleasure and a joy.
0: The Persisters Can podcast is hosted and produced by Teresa Woods. Our theme song, Trailblazer, was created by four-time Emmy-nominated composer Guillaume. And our logo was created by Canadian graphic designer, Andrea Ledwell. Thanks for tuning in.